Mark is going to be so happy yeah. that he didn't have to be here to suffer through me going on and on and on about La La Land all over again. Ah, Mark. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. Well, you know, as, as anybody who has uh, been anywhere within a thousand miles of me for the last several <laughs> months knows, uh, I am uh, a La La-holic. I am mad about this movie. You were there on stage when the audience nearly attacked me at the uh, the theater downtown when we did our film week show, and I said, La La Land is my favorite movie of the past 18 years. I thought I was going to be mobbed. <laughs> I really I thought I was going to be tarred and feathered and thrown out. Uh, uh, Prophet is, is never appreciated in, uh, in his own town or whatever. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, anyway, you know, La La Land is just, it's such a, I, I love that movie in every conceivable way. I've seen it over a dozen times now. Uh, we had family in town over spring break. I, I, they wanted to watch it. I didn't impose it on them, but uh, we saw it about three times that week. So La La Land is now out. Yes. Uh, 4K. And it is a... If ever there was a... This is you know, like Hidden Figures last week. La La Land it deserves to be on 4K. Uh, it, uh, it, the colors, the brightness, the saturation, everything about La La Land is just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, it's, it's a 4K movie. The Blu-ray is good. But it, but you compare the Blu-ray to the 4K, it's just not even a question. Mm. Not even a question. That movie just lives in 4K. Everything is so saturated. It is uh, the HDR really, really, really pops. It's just beautifully done. An, an intentional saturation. Intentional. An, an intentional vividness. Not yes. just a sort of you know arbitrary vividness uh, because you know the Da Vinci was cranked up. No, right. this is all very much on perfect on purpose because things are being referenced. And this theme, uh, <laughs> S- me and Sebastian's theme, which we started the show with, uh, is so significant the way that factors into the movie. There are, I mean, I, I won't get into all of my, my whole La La Land thing, but every time I've seen it, I pick up something new. Yeah. It's really well thought out. And uh, I'm also going to, in a moment, uh, to spare Tim uh, any any <laughs> rants as well. I'm also going to tie this into my coverage of Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rushforth, the two Jacques Demy films that are so inspirational and so much a part of La La Land as much as any American musical because those are out this week as well from Criterion, who was very smart and yeah. clearly saw... Paying attention. When's, when's La La Land coming out? Paying attention. Pop yeah. those suckers out. Yeah. Same week. Get that out there. Get them out there. All on the shelves at the same time because... Uh, in one of the featurettes on La La Land, it's very clear where uh, Damien Chazelle is talking about the movies that inspired him and inspired the writing of the film. They're popping those logos up. In the first batch, it's, you know, Singing in the Rain, The Bandwagon, American in Paris. And then he goes into Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Young Girls of Rushford, and bam, those logos pop out there. It's like it's it's an advertisement for uh, for the Criterion Blu-rays it's, as well. It's, it's really smart marketing on everybody's part. Everybody. Um, Why not? And, and also, it's not just marketing, though. It's it's these. This is true. This is film education. This is you know. This is the sort of connective tissue across I don't know whatever it is sixty years of cinema. Yeah, that connects one one era of cinema uh, to another era of cinema legitimately. Yeah. Uh, um. Uh, through through these filmmakers, and uh, so you know, yeah, that's okay. Good good work on their part. It is. Now, I can't help but feel as if another La La Land release is in the offing. And here's why. And this is why I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I, I recommend, obviously, the 4K. You got to get it. You got to have it. It's, it's La La Land. Watch it endlessly. It's ultraviolet. I have it on my phone now. I can watch and listen to La La Land anywhere on the planet at any time, which I'm going to need to because this is my drug for, for life. <laughs> but uh, I still feel like there's a special edition in the offing somewhere because. 
if you go online and you look at there's a there's a kind of a mashup video for someone in the crowd that includes a ridiculous amount of footage from a musical number on board a ship that I've never seen before and it's not in the movie mm. it appears to be clearly something that was from an excised music number that no one else has talked about. And I haven't heard anybody really address this. So somewhere, somehow, there are other, there's more material. There's also another verse of someone in the crowd that was chopped out of the film. And so a lot of this material, I, uh, if, unless Giselle wants to keep it under wraps, I can't help but feel it's being cut into something mm. that will show up on a, on a special edition somewhere down the line. Um, that being said, here's how, the, here's how the extras shake out on this. Bunch of featurettes, about an hour and ten minutes worth of featurettes, which are EPK stuff. They're all, you know, four to ten minutes a, a piece. And the one on the freeway scene is amazing. I mean, what they went through to shoot that. Mm. The rehearsals, and then they had a day of rehearsals on the freeway, and then they had two days of shooting. The last day was overcast. Really interesting stuff. Amazing work that went into it. All the wardrobe changes. Really astonishing. Uh, and then there's other stuff like, you know, John Legend's first movie as an actor. Well, whatever. Who cares? L.A. as a backdrop, well, fine, whatever, who cares? I mean, a lot of this is really fluff. It's just sort of filler featurette stuff. Um, uh, there's a bit on the music, much more interesting, because you get into the, the whole, the way the music was written and developed and the relationship between uh, Chazelle and Hurwitz, who were, you know, college roommates at Harvard, wrote all this music for a million, for a film that they thought they were going to make for a million dollars coming out of school, yeah. right? You know, and then here, you're a decade and a half later, they finally get it made, and it's 14 Oscar nominations and an Oscar apiece. Anyway, very interesting. Demo recordings of Hurwitz and Chazelle with just, you know, MIDI music and yeah. trying to sing, both of them tone deaf, <laughs> and with lyrics... That are terrible. These aren't the final lyrics that were written by the the, the, the Broadway team. These are terrible lyrics. They're yeah. awful. Which is why there's a thing called a lyricist. <laughs> so I give them that. I give them props for including those because there's a courage to saying this is you know this, this is, is where, where we began. This, this is, is where this, we this began. Is ground zero. And but but here's the the you know all that stuff is fine. Whatever. There's a gallery. The, the, the most interesting thing is the, uh, the audio commentary with, uh, with Chazelle and Hurwitz, who clearly still are kind of in roommate mode. Uh, you know, you can tell that these are, these are young guys who still, they've had a long friendship, and they, and they have kind of a, you know, uh, Chazelle even panics Hurwitz at one point by saying, uh, did you know that we actually tried to cut by cutting out that song? We also tried cutting out Audition. He got, did you know that? No, I, I, I'm glad you didn't tell me that. <laughs> that stuff's all very funny. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really good audio commentary. Uh, they, I think, Chazelle reveals a little too much in some places because now there's a continuity error that I'm going to notice every single time I watch the movie. Really, would never have noticed it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he got it eventually. But uh, how the structure of the film changed—it's just all so fascinating and it's so so wonderful. So. You know, La La Land needs no further boost from me. Uh, so I'm going to guardedly say this is worth getting just because it's the only one on the market now, but I cannot help but feel that there is more to come. There's a, there's a, a more in-depth documentary that's not just EPK material. There's more excised footage. There's, there's more to be said about this movie. So a special edition down the line. By the way, yesterday... Uh, and, you know, there's this live La La Land production thing that's oh, uh, yeah. going to be touring. It's going to be at the Hollywood Bowl in, songs, a, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Live music. Uh, the, there apparently, 
uh, I was told yesterday that that uh, like the 26th of this month is, which I guess is is like this week or, or uh, so, is is is, week, is, yeah. is is La La Land Day. Really? Yeah. It's La La Land in, Day in in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, La La Angeles. Yeah, yeah, just because they does owes... Garcetti know about this? That's to me. <laughs> Apparently, there's going to be music performed all around town and yeah. whatnot. So anyway, uh, Thursday be. the twenty sixth, La La Land Day. Yeah, that's this week. That's this week. So uh, anyway, so um, all right. That being said, let's move into the Criterion releases of Umbrellas of Cherbourg and uh, the Young Girls of Rushford. Jacques Demy the great French director in the 1960s uh, made two musicals with Catherine Deneuve, which are both legendary. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the first one, uh, music by Michel Legrand, who, of course, inspired uh, Chazelle and Hurwitz in all of their La La Land exploits with his mastery of jazz and modern music and kind of whipping it all together in a musical frenzy. Uh, Michel Legrand, also very famous for you know such things as Yentl mm. and on and on and on. I mean, uh, one of the all-time great composers in, in movie history. Uh, this, is, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg is sung all the way through. And if the ending to La La Land ever sort of vexes you like it does some people, it is straight out of the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's the same ending. Well, you, you know, the interesting thing in, in terms of the specifics of the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and La La Land is yeah. this one thing. One of the big criticisms for people who weren't as big as a fan of the film as you, <laughs> um, which, which doesn't include me. I'm a big fan yeah. of the film. I'm a big fan of the film. But one of their criticisms uh, was always, uh, these people can't sing. These people can't dance. Well, first of all, that's not true. They both can sing and dance. Are they the singers and dance? Are they, you know, Sid Sharif and Jay? You know, no. Perhaps not. But of course, anybody who's seen Umbrellas of Sherbert. <laughs> There's no one in this movie that can yeah, sing. No one can. And, 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 it, and it's almost the point. It's yes. All, it's, all, it, it's part and parcel. Precisely. And, and, and there's something about La La Land and, and, and the sort of humanness of the performances. Emma Stone, I think, is actually quite good. But nevertheless, the humanness of the performances that are part and parcel of that film, too. You're supposed to feel like, you know what, I could have sang that song about yeah. that good. <laughs> that's, that's the way you're supposed to feel. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Cherbourg is a wonderful film. It is particularly penetrating if you are uh, French of this period and you understand the backdrop of the Algerian War, which is, you know, who sets a musical against the Algerian War? <laughs> Well, you know what? Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote a musical set against the Holocaust in World War II. Yeah. So get over yourselves. That all was released around the same time. Yeah. Um, the Algerian War, however, was much more, much more of a, 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 an ongoing and, and recent memory uh, yeah. for the French in 1964-65 uh, yeah, than World present. War II was. Yeah. Very present. In, so in, in, in a guerrilla war, as opposed to a sort of like correct. old school sort of, you know. Yeah, the, it was basically the beginning of of the whole sort of you know war on terror thing mm. that is happening right now. Uh, anyway, this is just an absolutely beautiful uh, movie. Uh, Catherine Deneuve, you know, is working in the umbrella shop, having a romance with the mechanic played by Nino Castelnuovo, and uh, everything that transpires in and around that uh, that faded romance. Beautiful, beautiful transfer here. It's a 2K digital restoration, sensational sound. Nothing about this is is anything less than beautiful to look at and listen to. Uh, there's a 2008 documentary, Once Upon a Time, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which most people who are fans of this movie have seen already, uh, and it continues to be very, very good. There's uh, an interview from 2014 with a film scholar by the name of Rodney Hill, which is fine. Uh, the 1964 television interview with Jacques Demy and Michel Legrand is wonderful, wonderful archival stuff. 
And then uh, you have some uh, audio recordings with uh, Catherine Deneuve and, you know, a few other things. Um, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Now, in many respects, I'm a bigger fan of The Young Girls of Rochefort. It's not as affecting of a film. It's fluffy. Young Girls of Rochefort is just all about a bunch of people who show up in the town of Rochefort for this big carnival. And everybody's kind of loving and laughing and romancing and dancing and, you know, lots of things going on. It's not really in-depth. It has dialogue. It's not all sung. It's colorful and candy-colored, and some of the dancing is really silly and over the top. And it has George Shakiris yeah, and, and Gene yeah, Kelly showing yeah. up for no reason other than the fact that... that they had they, been in the... <laughs> well, they, they, they shot this simultaneously in English and in French. The English language version has never really been seen here. So uh, this is, you know, the, and, and it's not shown here either. You don't have that other version. You only have the, uh, the, the original French language version. So we continue to be wondering where that English language version is. But in any case, uh, the, uh, this has a lot of great stuff on it as well. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a 1966 interview with Jacques Demy and Le, Michel Legrand having the same discussion about this that they did about uh, Cherbourg. Uh, 2014 conversation with uh, Demi's biographer Jean-Pierre Bertome and costume designer Jacqueline Moreau, which is great. And then uh, there's a thing from this uh, Belgian television show on how the film was made. And uh, Agnès Varda, who was married to Jacques Demi and is a great filmmaker in her own right, mm -hmm. made a 1993 documentary on uh, the 25th anniversary of the film, which is wonderful. And that's the key extra here. That is absolutely terrific. And as before, 2K restoration with Great audio, great video, everything. Fantastic. So Criterion has done a real number on these. These are both also available on Filmstruck and have been for a while. That's how I've been watching them lately. But uh, they're on Blu-ray now and uh, timed with La La Land. So you can get your, your, musical, your musical fix for, I don't know, however much it is to buy all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it every, time, every dime. Outstanding. All right. Let's move on to something other than Wade's musical obsessions. <laughs> what else do we have? Um, uh, let's see. You want to you want to do some of these? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, know the, the the this uh, this exploitation stuff, the cult stuff. Yeah. So we'll get we'll get going with Dark Waters here, a film by Mariano Diano. Uh, this is a neat this is a neat film from back in the day, about 1994. I remember when this actually came out. I was doing a whole bunch of the. Um, uh, you know, Oh, no, no, carry on. Was that me? Okay. No, no, no. Something, I, I don't know what the hell was ding yeah. in there. Something ding. Yeah, I so there was a ding, yeah. I was, I, was, I, was, I was dinged with a message. Might be the microwave. It's okay. Um, anyway, this is, this is actually a pretty, neat, a pretty neat film. Kind of a Lovecraft uh, sort of uh, piece that we have here. It's about a woman um, who had all these sort of tortured nightmares, these horrible visions when she was a child. She goes to this island, this primitive island, where her father years ago started this monastery, and she finds out all kinds of sort of like malevolent evil stuff going mm -hmm. on with it. Kind of you know, kind of Rosemary's Baby, uh, uh, kind of thing. So Italian thriller. This has all kinds of great stuff on the audio commentary by the director. Uh, Lovecraft made me do it, which is a little uh, vignette uh, that references how uh, Lovecraft uh, was an influence on all of this stuff. It's three or four uh, a little featurettes, as a matter of fact, and, and and an introduction by the director, and several deleted scenes too. So if you're a fan of this sort of um, Italian horror cinema. From the 90s, as opposed to the stuff that we yeah. usually think about, you know, the sort of our you know, Dario Argento and all that kind of stuff from the 60s and 70s. This sort of carries over, all of that sort of carries over into this Dark Waters on Blu-ray. Lots of good material there. Oh, and we should mention, by the way, we, uh, we have an interview today on the show. Uh, Tim and I had a chance to talk to Julie Dash. 
whose uh, 25-year-old classic Daughters of the Dust is uh, on Blu-ray, of course. We covered it some weeks ago from Cohen, mm. and uh, we had a great chance to talk to Julie Dash, who and is... a really interesting conversation, very illuminating. So, such a great conversation, and, uh, you know, I just, I give her so much props, because, you know, you would think that, that 25 years of, because her the, the legacy that they paved, she was part of the L.A. Rebellion and a certain group of black filmmakers that came out of my alma mater, UCLA, um, the, the, the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know, you would think that the uh, that you know they would have at a certain point just sort of said, well, you know, it looks like now here we are, twenty five years later, and the seeds they planted yeah. have sprouted. Yeah, yeah, and showing up in all sorts of contemporary media, it's, music the, videos, uh, contemporary films, uh, uh, Beyonce's Lemonade, yeah. Jordan Pills Get Out. I, we, I, yeah. I, I wanted to mention that, there, I forgot to. Yeah, she mentioned Charles Burnett. Yeah, uh, so you know, it's, it's a great Burnett. conversation. So that'll be uh, later in the show. Uh, we also over here have a Severn release on Blu-ray, The Other Hell. Uh, now, <laughs> when you know, years ago, when when Ray and I made Schlock, and Tim was part mm. of that as well. Um, the Corman told us, and, and Arkoff told Ark, Sam Arkoff told us that really all they had were titles and posters. Now I guarantee you, this movie did not exist until after they made this artwork. <laughs> the artwork here is uh, basically nuns in some kind of a cultish. One nun is screaming and has blood on her on the white part of her habit. The other nun has some kind of a sword behind her. There's a crow, uh, and the other hell. Okay. I don't even know what this is about when I look at that, but all I know is it's got nuns and uh, it's got blood and then something to do with hell. So directed by Bruno Mattei, who is uh, not really a giallo guy per se, but certainly an Italian yeah. schlockmeister yeah. of that era, uh, but not one of the legendary giallo guys. Anyway, this is part of that subgenre known as nunsploitation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nuns, nuns get possessed. In nun, yeah, it's just yeah. let you know. Let's just uh, take it out on the nuns. These are all people who had just a bad time in Catholic school, and they, they this is their vengeance. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, this is from the 1980s, uh, right at the beginning of the 1980s. So it kind of splits the difference between the 70s and the 80s schlock films. And uh, all it really is, it's just about a bunch of murders in a convent. And that's really all it has going for it. Uh, you know, it's got a few other little occultish things that happen in the background. But by and large, really all it is, it's just murders in a convent. And uh, it's cheesy and silly and kind of funny sometimes. Uh, there's an interview with one of the actresses here. And there's an audio commentary with, the, uh, with, with Claudio Fragasso, who was kind of a, a co-writer and a co-filmmaker on this. But otherwise, uh, you really have to be a fan of the genre to really enjoy yeah. this. Yeah, 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 fan of the genre and the subgenre. Uh, boarding House, I've got here. Boarding House. Uh, you got to love the tagline. This is another 1982 sort of horror film, American horror film. Johnny Johnny Wintergate made this film and a couple of other uh, of these. Uh, sort of cross between sort of um, you know uh, blood covered horror films and Playboy sex video movies yeah. that he would make, and he would put himself in them. I think he's the lead in this one. Anyway, it's about a boarding house story where a whole bunch of murders happened some years ago, uh, and then people start occupying the border house again, and of course the murders have to start. You up know, again. I hate it when.
when that happens. It's just a bummer. And of course, everybody, you know, the, the camisole was a very big outfit back in the early 80s. It's like yeah. a night world for ladies. Everybody in this movie, for, in, for no reason whatsoever, is wearing a camisole. Yeah. No matter what they're doing, no matter what time of day it is, <laughs> whatever it is, they're standing there in a camisole. Uh, and nevertheless, if you are a fan of the stuff, this is a two-disc set with um, uh, all kinds of special features on it, including uh, a rare director's cut, an alternate ending, uh, an original introduction to the film. Uh, so, you know, you know, genre fans of this particular kind of stuff, dig, get your, get your Johnny Wintergate on. Boarding house. So we got a bunch here from Slasher Video, who distributes through Olive. Uh, these have been out for a little while, but there are some absolute stone-cold classics in here. The first two are Death Nurse, and Death Nurse and Death Nurse 2. Now, Tim and I had the privilege of reviewing on radio a similar kind of a recent <laughs> film called Nurse in 3D, uh, which was just an ordeal. Oh, my God. It, it the walk- only movie ever that ever made me want to say to a young lady, would you please put your panties on? <laughs> it's, please. She's a, you know, it, what's her name, the actress? Oh, who, it, 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 I can't remember. She pops up in a lot of stuff. She's yeah. from Jim Jarmusch Paz, films. Paz, uh, Paz, not not Paz Vega, just not Paz Vega. So Paz really, something yeah, else. I'll, I'll, I'll look her up real quick while we're. So anyway, that was just silly because we all know that if you're going to be a murderous, crazy, homicidal uh, de la Huerta, Paz de la Huerta, that's yeah. it. So okay, so you know the reason that her nurse doesn't ring true is for a very simple reason: you, you cannot be a murderous nurse and run around without panties and a miniskirt and stiletto heels. No. It is too hard to kill people. You can't, it's gonna, you're going to make a mess. You're going to make a mess. So that's, that's, just, that's just exploitative. But if you're a fat, schlubby nurse who knows how to handle a butcher knife and you're wearing practical shoes, yes. okay, then I'm down. Yes. Practical shoes. It's all about the practical shoes. And that's what Death Nurse 1 and 2 have uh, going for them. Uh, made in uh, 1987 and 1988. Uh, directed by Nick Millard, and these movies are a riot. They're an absolute riot. Uh, Nick Millard and uh, his, uh, his, his, some of his uh, collaborators, producer uh, Irmi Millard and uh, Jesus Teran uh, from Slasher Video, they, um, uh, they join him on the commentary, which is a lot of fun and very, very revealing and interesting. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff on here, photos and... Uh, featurettes and whatnot but ultimately really you, you just want to watch the movie because it's just so darn funny uh and i'm not sure if it was intended to be funny but boy it's funny in hindsight it really is what is what is cool is that the the, the filmmakers who made these wacky yeah. movies back in the day they seem to have a good f- amount of fun yeah uh, with them you know they don't, yeah. they don't take it all too seriously no and, and they shot these things for no money. Yeah. and we, Very little money. And you're getting paid again for good work. We've also got Splatter, Architects of Fear, from oh, Slasher Pete, Video. Yeah, Pete Rowe. Uh, yeah, uh, Pete Rowe. Ter- this is really a lot of fun. Uh, the uh, this uh, Great audio commentary here with uh, the uh, Bill Smith of Cannibal.com and Jesus Teran of Slasher Video. Uh, this is just looks behind the, the whole history of the makeup effects thing that kind of grew in the 1980s and... You know, it really became very mainstream at a certain point. Uh, yeah. uh, but it's really very interesting. So, uh, because, you know, very little money, but no, this is, this is pre-CGI, right? There, there, was a, there was a middle, no, not middle, maybe late 90s sort of reboot of the Addams Family series. That's right. It was yeah. after those Barry Sonnenfeld yeah. films. Right? Yeah. Pete was one of the instrumental guys in that. And that series didn't last long, but there it was. And we also have the 25th anniversary of 1988's uh, Cemetery Sisters. 
which is, uh, you know, uh, kind of a pretty terrible gore <laughs> film, to be honest. Uh, but again, directed by Nick Millard, written and directed by Nick Millard, who does the uh, commentary here with the, uh, it's the same crew, Ermi uh, Millard and uh, Jesus Tehran. Uh, look, the idea here is you got two sisters who kill people. And uh, it's played by real-life sisters, and they're not very good actresses, but because they are sisters, there's a certain degree of fun to it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, it, it's, it, look, this stuff was made for a buck fifty, and uh, the fact that it still lives and still has some kind of a cult uh, currency, I just give them all the props in the world. And you can tell they are so thrilled to have their stuff remembered. Uh, from Death Nurse to... Yeah, whatever the yeah, hell. Yeah, Cemetery, Cemetery Sisters. Sisters. Yeah, good knock it out of there. And then lastly, on Blu-ray is uh, another slasher video, Cinco de Mayo. And uh, that's not about all the wonderful things that happen on Cinco de Mayo. That is about all the horrible things that happen on Cinco de Mayo. And in particular, we talk about El Maestro. El Maestro, who's kind of like the Cinco de Mayo version of uh, Jason or... Uh, or Freddy or yeah. Michael Myers yeah. or any of the rest of them. He's just going to wreak vengeance on everybody who's ever upset him and humiliated him, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, you wind up with Cinco de Mayo, which is sort of like all the rest of the movies from that era. It's it's like, what was it? Uh, Sorority House Massacre. Oh, and yeah. this is a million of them. Yeah. So, you know. Anyway, Cinco de Mayo on Blu-ray. Uh, a lot of fun. And uh, this one's directed by uh, Paul Ragsdale. Who went on to do a few things, and uh, the uh, yeah, you know, it's, I mean, if you like films from that era, you'll enjoy these. They're, it's good cult stuff. You gotta kind of be into it. Yeah, it's good cult stuff. And then let's see. Uh, let me just uh, pop a couple of other ones into the list here. Um, Slasher uh, on a bit more recent uh, note. Slasher.com, which is an updating of this whole genre. Uh, I don't know if this works terribly well, but it it. You know, it, it's got some low-budget cred. It's sort of try, it doesn't try too hard to be too slick. Uh, wants to do a little internet version on the whole slasher thing. And then uh, this one's actually a lot more interesting. Chupacabra territory. Uh, this the uh, the whole idea of the chupacabra, which has been kind of central to some horror films many times in the past. Chupacabra is a Mexican goat. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's that. It's that. It's a mythical kind of Mexican creature. I. I, I don't know. Is it part of the whole Day of the Dead thing? No. Does it come no, from no, something no, else? No, no, no. They, they, who knows what? It okay. is. Not part of that. No. Well, anyway, the Day of the Dead thing is more of a religious sort of. Well, anyway, the chupacabra here is supposedly was what was behind these these hikers who went uh, disappearing, and people are looking for them. And you know, when you go looking for somebody who may have been snatched by the chupacabra, and you yeah. don't bring along a chupacabra hunter or a chupacabra killer, you're gonna be in trouble. You're gonna be in trouble. So, chupacabra territory is, has, is really well made, uh, despite all my jokes. Uh, Matthew William, uh, Matthew McWilliams, who directed it uh, and wrote it, does a very good job. Shows some real chops with not a lot of budget. Uh, really very interesting. The creature effects and everything else, very, very solid. Uh, nice Blu-ray. Chupacabra Territory from Maltaro Entertainment. Well done. Ah, good stuff. Good yeah. stuff from the genre. All right. So uh, let's move to, you know, we got... Uh, oh, this is television. You want to that's, yeah, that's, the, that's our only TV thing, so we'll let's... Hold, uh, hold let's, that for a moment. Well, let's get it out of the way. Get it out of the way, The Affair. Get it out of the way. Yeah. Uh, so The Affair... Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons, uh, in that it uh, originally, was it an Australian, it was either an Australian or a New Zealand series uh, that happened. That was sort of interesting. So, so we have The Affair. This is the third season of The Affair. 
the, the place on Showtime in, the, Showtime in the United States. Now, this is interesting in that, that it is an adaptation, an adaptation of an Australian series that, that, that did well, that's very interesting. well. that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so they brought it here, they, and it's pretty much straight. It's pretty much the same story. Uh, generally speaking, it's about what happens in the aftermath of an affair, and it's also a death. And we go through this uh, season by season, revealing who did what and whatever. By the time we get to season three, which is what this is, we know who did exactly what and how it's all going to round, round out is what's particularly interesting here. Anyway, special features. Um, uh, you have some audio comment commentary stuff and some other sort of more pedestrian sort of special feature stuff on here. This is season three. Um, and I don't know if if you haven't seen the Australian one first, it really is interesting to sort of check that out, and then look at this and see how these things translate from one from one angle to the other. Kind of interesting, if you ask me. Very cool. Uh, and yeah, new movies. Let's talk about some new, new movies. movies? Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start with the leveling, which is really really good, and I'm just I don't know why this does it. These some of these movies don't get better theatrical exposure. This is from Monterey. Leveling is one of those movies where somebody goes back home again and has to reconnect with their past and so forth and yada, yada, yada. Oh, the one those... where she has to talk to her father. Well, she hasn't talked to her. Is that this, that one? This is, this is British. And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of these films are American films where people, you know, like, uh, whatever. They go, they, go, they go home to some small village and something's happening and somebody's dying of cancer. And that's, this, is, this is superior because it takes place in England. It's just a more interesting area. There you go. This takes place in Somerset. Um, it's about a woman who's a veterinarian, played by Ellie Kendrick, who's from, you probably know her from Game of Thrones. And um, Somerset is a gorgeous part of England. Now, I know Somerset a little bit because some friends of ours live there. They moved there not too long ago. Andrew? And no, yes, they, indeed. Oh, yes, they indeed. Used live, they used to live in, like, Notting in London, Hill. in Notting Hill. Yeah, and yeah. then they moved to Somerset. So we, we, uh, we know Somerset a little bit now. I, we actually got lost running in Somerset, by the way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inter interject a story. So one, one evening, we're, we're visiting them. We're staying at his in-law's place, which is a lovely... Houses don't have numbers there, by the way. They have names. It's like, Skirwich Happenfrapp. <laughs> That's the, and and you're, if you're the postman, you're supposed to know. Oh well, we'll just Herwich Skeppenfratch, which is over there. It's that house is Herwich Skepp. How do you remember the names of the houses? It's like not even a street name. It's just the name of the house. I don't even. And you, it's like deliver this to Bob. Well, where does Bob live? Know. He's Bob. You're supposed to know. He's just Bob. He's somewhere. Doesn't make sense. Anyway, they know how to deliver it. So you're running around, and it's just beautiful and green and farmlands, and you know, and there are no numbers on the homes and nothing. Got lost. Just got completely lost. Running around, and I'm trying to use my GPS wristwatch, which is an old Garmin, which wasn't helping me know where I was at all. And next thing we know, I mean, you know, because his father-in-law had told us, oh, just run down, and then you make a left, and then you make another left, and you'll be, you'll be back here. Well, we made a couple of lefts, and we're in the, I don't know where we are. We took the wrong lefts. So next thing I know, there's gunfire. I'm hearing shotguns. And, and, and I just think, okay, if I were in L.A. and I heard these sounds, I'd be terrified. But I know because I'm in Somerset, there's got to be a reason for this. So apparently there's a big wild patch in between all the farms where people go and they do, you know, they shoot at pigeons or something. Ah. And so finally we get back onto a, onto a main road after going through a whole lot of farmland and coming into contact with cows and all the stuff that you're supposed to admit when you go through customs and, <laughs> and immigration and say, have you ever been on a farm? Have you been on a farm during your stay? <laughs> you mean where they might have mad cow disease? No, no, not at all. 
Like, who's ever going to answer yes to that question? <laughs> I know, so, there's only one reason there. finally, and then an SUV comes by, and it's a lovely couple with a couple of dogs in the back and three shotguns. And so we get into a car with some strangers who have shotguns. Only in Somerset can that actually be... Anyway, they, they <laughs> when took... When you told them the name of the house, that they, they... Oh, yeah, they knew where it was. They knew exactly where yeah, it was. Yeah, that's, that's so all they took us right so back. Right. It was ridiculous. Anyway, uh. so, this is, so this all takes place in that, that just terrifying part of England, which is wonderful and beautiful and lovely, I, I, I should say. So uh, Ellie Kendrick, wonderful actress. And yes, the, the idea here is that her brother has died. She's gone home. And uh, and yes, she's de- confronting her father, which this is probably what you're. Yes, you're, yes, yes, this, yes. Okay. Yes. So David David Trufton plays the uh, the father, who is also a wonderful, wonderful actor. And you know, then all this deep seated family stuff comes out. But boy, is it wonderful! Uh, the leveling, really, really good film. Uh, premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Did had a great run uh, in England as well, and should have done better here. It is really good. Mm. Uh, I got Catfight over here. Sandra Oh, Anne Heche, and Alicia Silverstone. Oh, boy, there's a blast. Yeah, blast indeed, right? Yeah. Uh, from the past. This is actually kind of a neat little movie. It's about these uh, college friends, Sandra Oh, and Anne yeah. Heche characters, these college uh, buddies uh, from way back in the day. And they come together for this event uh, that one of their their husbands, one's an artist and the other one's a chef, this whole big old thing. And they've always had this sort of like simmering thing between them yeah. that, you know, sort of petered out because one went one way and they had different walks of life and all of that. And they come together for this and it all sort of bubbles back to the surface. Now, this is dark. Uh, it's funny, 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 but it's dark and it's sort of gritty and you got to be kind of ready for that. I mean, there's some... Some, there's, there's, there's this one sequence where uh, the paint, Anne Hage, she does this painting of Sandra oh, and man. It's like this hacked up slash. It was very, very dark stuff. Anyway, it's it, most, mostly it's just funny. This has a lot of special features commentary from the writer-director, O'Neill Turkle, uh, along with uh, commentaries from Sandra O oh, and Anne Hage. Uh, and some references back to violent mm-hmm. films. You remember violent films? Sure. So there's, there's some references back. It's very, really, really interesting stuff. Anyway, this is on uh, Blu-ray. Who's this from? MPI? Uh, let's see. Yes, that's uh, Dark Sky, MPI's Dark Skyline. Ah, yeah. outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And then uh, a couple of a couple of straight-to-video action-y things here. Uh, Marine 5, The Battleground. Um, Who's playing that guy now? Uh, I, 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 Mike I, the Miz Mizzenin. I've never heard of him. I don't know anyway, So the, Mar- uh, uh, the Marine 5, Battleground. Uh, but John Cena yeah. played the Marine. Yeah. Uh, once I, there, there's been about three or four people who've it's played not, the Marine look it's from WWE all that matters is that they have a wrestler who can play a Marine which yeah. means pretty much any wrestler look at John John's a real actor now I know he is yeah, right yeah, yeah. so anyway uh, directed by James Nunn who's perfectly workmanlike uh, does a decent job it's it's the same stuff all over again you know this is uh, Jake Carter's Marine he has been working as an EMT, and he's now, you know, he's, forget it. It's just, it's, it's the same deal. <laughs> he's a Marine. He's got to do something courageous and the whole thing. So, uh, you know, if you like the first four, you like this one. No, really, it's just no point in even getting into the plot. So uh, Detour from uh, Magnolia's Magnet Line is uh, better than I expected it to be, largely because of Ty Sheridan, who's uh, really t- quite a good actor. Um, the idea here is about a you know it's a, this young kid who's just a really naive sort of law student and he winds up uh, he, he's not really initiated in life and he winds up being responsible for a terrible tragedy which I will not get into there are, it's a horrible tragedy and uh, 
that winds up pushing him into a dark trajectory from which, let's call it, that's his detour, uh, the detour mm. of the title. Mm. And uh, that winds up requiring dramatic action in order to sort of uh, pull out of the tailspin. That's probably the best way I can detour, uh, d detail detour without giving anything uh, serious away. Good actors in this really make what is otherwise kind of schlocky material feel a lot more, uh, not a lot more relevant. Uh, Ty Sheridan is terrific. Uh, Stephen Moyer, Emery Cohen, uh, Bell, and Bell Powley, who's always really yeah, great. Yeah. Some interesting extras on here, cast and crew interviews, uh, deleted scenes. Sharp little movie. Probably better as a rental, but check it out. I got, a, I, I got the exact same thing here. The girl with all the gifts. This, particularly if you look at the uh, the cast of this yeah. thing, Jimmy Atherton, who's yeah. in. Their finest, which I think opened yeah, last week, just opened there, last week. Yeah. And you also, you know, you got Glenn Close, you got Petty Constantine. It's one of those sort of dystopian, futuristic things, right? Yeah, kind of a zombie thing. A lot of flesh eating stuff yeah. going on, but in particular, what's going on in this one is you have these children uh, who hunger flesh, in particular, right now. Some of them, though, have maintained their wits. They're not. They're they're like kind of half zombie, half it, 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 yeah. Yeah. There's and there's a reason for it, which we won't whole, get into. There's a whole thing going on. Yeah. Glenn Close is the stock yeah. and all that kind of stuff going. But that's the that's the little sharper part about this yeah. movie. It, it, you have to get you know, in the mask and all this kind of stuff because you know if you don't put the mask on them, they'll eat you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but but, but things happen and in humanity depends on all of this. Good to see Glenn Close. Good to see uh, Petty Constantine. Uh, and I I think it's a sharp. It's so so far sort of quasi zombie movies yeah. go. This has a pretty good sharpening. It's Special feature, uh, a behind-the-scenes featurette is pretty much all you got going on uh, on this one. Blu-ray, DVD, uh, digital HD. Kind of cool. Yeah. I, I liked it. I liked it. All right. Let's get into some uh, foreign films and classic films. Uh, we've got Rumblefish on Criterion. Yeah. You and I were talking about this right we before were talking the show. About, yes, we were. Uh, people don't really understand that, that's <laughs> meant, that this film is meant to be a sort of magical realism. I know. Of a mode, and they take it very directly. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Well, this was this was Coppola in his Essie Hinton moment, mm. and he had, everyone was kind of wanting Coppola to be the Godfather guy again, the Apocalypse Now guy again, and then they thought, why are you making Essie Hinton movies? These are I read those when I was thirteen. You know, what's mm. the point of that? We all read Essie Hinton in junior high. Why yeah. is the guy who did the Godfather now going junior high on me? Um, well, for a lot of reasons, the outsiders appealed to him, and then uh, there Rumble... are an era that's relevant to him. Yeah, um, the, 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 those characters, that period. But this is not the outsiders. No, uh, the outsiders. This, the outsiders, is it was a, a much more straightforward film. You're right. Rumblefish was um, a kind of magical realism thing with a young Matt Dillon doing really impressive work and an amazing supporting cast. I mean, we forget who else is in this. Mickey Rourke. Diane Lane and and uh, you know, this is a great this is a really terrific cast. Uh, Chris Penn even shows up in this thing. Yeah, yeah. You know that was one of his first things after we we had graduated. Um, this is from 1983, and I remember very well because I was working as an usher at the theater, and there was a little kiosk across the street that ran a loop of movie theater trailers. And when this thing came on, this trailer was just uh, it, it, the music, the the Stuart Copeland music, the trailer, everything was just so fun and ripping and roaring, and it was really really interesting. Uh, you get everything here on the extras. I mean, gobs and gobs of extras. There's a uh, there's an audio commentary featuring Coppola, just so you understand what that is. 
I, I, there are new interviews with Coppola, uh, author and co-screenwriter Essie Hinton, and uh, Roman Coppola, Coppola's son, who was an associate producer on this, who's a good director in his own right. Yeah. And uh, Diane Lane is interviewed. There's a new conversation between uh, Steve Borum, the uh, cinematographer, and uh, Dean Tavalaris, who is the production designer. Uh, French television interview from 1984 with Mickey Rourke, who looks totally different at the time. Uh, the uh, the original trailer, which I still think is just a masterpiece. There's the uh, Don't Box Me In music video, which is great. I mean, it's really, it's it's all just, I mean, everything you need to appreciate why this film still resonates and why it's worthy of Criterion is all here. It's fantastic. Out, outstanding, outstanding, outstanding. I have, uh, let me get back on my microphone, The Vampire Bet, um, Fay Ray, uh, this is this is really one of your earlier Frank Strier directing who did a number of little little monster movies from back in the day the the monster walks uh, condemned to life all kinds of stuff like that uh, directs this film it's 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 one of the earlier sort of interpretations of the post Dracula post Bram Stoker anyway Dracula myth in Hollywood yeah. uh, this is like 1933. Uh, basically, you have a small town. Uh, people start dying. They're, they're drained of blood. Uh, the, the, the town's folks uh, lean back on the old myth of vampires. They blame it, though, on a sort of simple-minded guy in the town, and they sort of go after him in that sort of mob, sort of Frankenstein mob style. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, the, 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 the murders uh, continue to happen. It's kind of neat stuff. Most importantly, it really looks beautiful. Um, and, you know, Lionel Atwell, Fay Ray, Melvin Douglas, you really can't go wrong with something like this. What do, who, who, this is this is re, this is related to UCLA in a particular way. Wait, wait, yeah, the UCLA, the film, UCLA, UCLA film and television archives were part of the restoration, and uh, the film detective who releases a lot of these uh, takes full advantage of that and uh, has released quite a quite a good looking Blu-ray. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of fans for the film detective among our listeners. We've yeah. talked about them many times in the past. Good stuff. All right, let's get into some foreign stuff here. Um, I got three from Arrow. Uh, these are two different arrows, I should point out. One is Arrow Academy and one is Arrow Video. So don't confuse the two. Uh, they both do similar kinds of uh, restoration work and, and release really, really cool uh, special editions. But there is Arrow Academy and there is Arrow Video. So let's start with Arrow Video, which tends to be more in the exploitation realm of things. They have Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive. Uh, this is a box set. It include well, it's a special edition. It's not you know, it's one set, but it's the size of one box, one uh, one Blu-ray. This is Dead or Alive, Dead or Alive Two, Birds, and Dead or Alive Final. Uh, the original Dead or Alive is the more famous film, and rightly so. It's yeah. really far and away the best one. The other two are are just kind of uh, hangers-on, not really all that interesting. The original Dead or Alive is deeply, deeply disturbing, and there's a new audio commentary here on it by uh, Mickey's biographer, Tom Mess, uh, along with archive interviews with the uh, cast and the crew and some making of featurettes for you know, all, of, all three of the films. But uh, Dead or Alive is, is one of Mickey's most insane movies. I'm, I've done commentary for Mickey before with Andy. Yeah. We, we really don't what understand. What are you guys on? Uh, what, what, uh, uh, Gozu. You on Gozu? Okay. Yeah, we're on Gozu. In which you know, yeah, that's yeah. that birthing <laughs> scene. It, it, you know, it, there's, there's no point to really understanding Mike. And I've interviewed Mike, and I still don't. I don't get it. He's yeah. just he's a he's a weird dude. But did he's he prolific. His, did he take off his shades when you? No, he didn't. Okay, no, he sat there with his blue hair and his shades. We've we yeah. the same experience, yeah. right? Yeah. 
And, yeah. he, and, and, and you don't know if he's staring at you or he's staring across the room. Yeah, it's like, it's just, yeah. this is uncomfortable. For <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's really, it's true. It's so uncomfortable talking to that man. Anyway, uh, so, you know, the, the, the idea is you got a Chinese gangster. Well, you got a Chinese gang and a Japanese gangster, and they're all trying to sort of uh, dominate the drug trade in Tokyo, and it's just, it's a... It winds up getting bloody and weird and horrible and strange and yet oddly seductive and and there are cyborgs and it doesn't really you know what I mean it just you kind of go what's going I don't I give up I'm just on I'm along for the ride uh, from Arrow Academy we have a couple of uh, really really interesting foreign language films the first one is Elio Petri's Property Is No Longer a Theft. Um, this is a movie I was otherwise totally unfamiliar with, uh, but it's and it's not bad. I mean, it comes from the uh, it comes from the Giallo era, but it is not a Giallo film. It is uh, it's a it's a you know a crime thriller, uh, but of a very very particular Italian type, and it all takes place uh, around the uh, adventures of a bank clerk who is trying to get revenge on a butcher. And, uh, yeah, I can't really say anything else about the plot. Just know that there's a bank clerk who wants to kill a butcher. That right there, that's your, that's your inception point. Uh, and then things go south very, very quickly. Property is no longer a theft. Solid little kind of a giallo-era crime thriller. And then, uh, much more interesting, is Story of Sin by Valerian Borochik. Valerian Borochik made, you know, all of those weird psychosexual beast movies. Yeah. Back in the day, and uh, strange dude, but really, really kind of a haunting vision. And they loaded this sucker up with all kinds of really, really interesting extras. Um, the story here is about a, um, a, a young woman who's very inexperienced in the world, shall we say, and uh, they need some money, so her parents take in a, a renter. Mm. And now her little uh, insulated bubble is about to be burst, and some really... You know, look, the story of sin. Yeah. That tells you what's going to happen. Pretty much tells you everything that's going to happen. So things intrude on her very, very insulated world in a way that only Borachik and his kind of strangely perverse Polish repressed sensibilities could possibly uh, manifest. So a uh, beautiful restoration of this thing. I mean, it's really, really, really a good-looking uh, restoration. And uh, tons of other little bits here, like the music box, which is uh, David Thompson, the famous uh, film critic, who goes deeply into the way that music is used in Borachek's films. Thompson, I've used his books, by the way, yeah. as textbooks. I mean, David Thompson is kind of as good as it gets where film critics are concerned, film historians. And a lot of other stuff on here, you know, uh, background essays on Borachek. And, you know, it's a, lot of, it's a, a good stock of extras. So that's a... The Story of Sin, a film by Valerian Borachik. Mm, outstanding. Uh, I've got this box here, uh, Lucino Visconti's Ludwig, which is about King Ludwig of Bavaria. Uh, when, uh, late 1860s to the early 1890s or so. Yep. Was when he, uh, so so this, is, this is Helmut Berger, uh, who plays the title character, and this is just fantastic. Trevor Howard shows yep. up in the movie. It's a long, long thing. This is this is a this is a um, uh, uh, two films and a third uh, booklet uh, here, which I haven't had a chance. Did you did you see the booklet? Yeah. At all? Are you familiar with it? it, it it's, be it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous nice stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it's a fantastic movie. 
uh, for sure. Um, uh, that, that you know, you should definitely see if you want to complete your sort of understanding of Visconti. Um, Visconti uh, is not really sufficiently appreciated today. No, you ever it's funny because people we, don't we, talk we, about we, him. We were just talking about we were just talking about some Italian, some of the Italian. Oh, that's when we were talking. We were talking with uh, Julie. We were talking yes, with Julie Dash. That's right. That's what it came up. Right? Yeah. Which I guess we'll you'll, you'll hear that in a little while. Yeah. And uh, just a few form, few more foreign titles here. Uh, another criterion, uh, Tampopo by ah. Juzo Itami, which recently got uh, re-released, restored and re-released, and uh, this is the result of that. Um, Tampopo, the you know the first of his noodle westerns. Itami came late to directing and uh, always made movies with his wife, who is the actress in these films, uh, Nabuko um, Miyamoto, and. Uh, you know, it, this is just a lovely film. It's so odd and so quirky and yet so uh, affectionate, the the idea of this woman who's trying to, you know, renovate and reform her little noodle shop and these strange kind of Western-like figures that come in and help her do it. I mean, it's it's a, it's offbeat, it's quirky, it's so unique, and yet it's just, it's uh, it's found a following everywhere in the world. It's a really a, a sweet film. And uh, great extras on here. This is a 4K digital restoration. Absolutely beautiful. It includes the 90-minute 1986 documentary, uh, The Making of Tampopo, which, again, would be a, a worthwhile purchase all by itself. And then tons of uh, interviews and uh, little archival uh, tidbits, including Tommy's 1962 debut short film, Rubber Band Pistol, uh, this is just a wonderful collection of stuff. Really one of their, their best foreign language uh, releases in terms of extras in a while. And then Paris. Oh, that was good. Paris 559? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It's really a powerful little film about these, about all these guys, these gay, these yeah. gay men um, uh, who meet, you know, and, yeah. they, and, they, and, and, and they have a, a fairly passionate evening together. Although it's really a sort of um, interesting sort of connection that they have on a much, much deeper level. Later... Uh, they discerned that they did, in fact, have unprotected sex. Uh-huh. Uh, so they have to go to the doctor, go to the doctor, and sort of like work their way through the process of what you have to go through. And then from there, as they sort of go through all of these things together, they fall in love and form this sort of relationship. It's actually It's a good-looking Blu-ray. Yeah. Good-looking Blu-ray. So anyway, I, I, I definitely suggest that one. And the ongoing uh, tragedy of war in our era, uh, especially in the Middle East and in surrounding areas, is a central part of Borderless by Amir Hossein Asghari. Uh, 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 Persian film. Persian film. In, uh, in Persian, Farsi, uh, Arabic, and English. It is uh, really, this is not yesterday's Persian film where, you know, kids are losing shoes and chasing balloons and there's a certain Persian, yeah. you know, Iranian new wave. Yeah. The the Kiarostami effect, the the Makmalbaf. That's not which at all. Which is beautiful stuff. But which is gorgeous. I love those yeah. films. But this is a new generation, and uh, it is it is this is a devastating look at uh, child soldiers, and what they go through and how life destroys childhood. Uh, it is really really a, a quite a powerful film. This is from 2014, just finally making its uh, its DVD debut uh, from Olive, and I I. Don't think if Olive hadn't have picked this up, I don't think this film would have would have gotten any kind of exposure at all. This is really uh, quite a powerful film. Um, definitely worth checking out. It is uh, borderless on DVD only, not Blu-ray. And then uh, lastly, Land and Shade by Cesar Acevedo is uh, a haunting, haunting film that won the Candor a camera door at the uh, 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 very fr- at the. Um, 
Cannes Film Festival, the Camera Door, for those who don't know, is the award that pa- spans all of the different sections of the Cannes Film Festival. It is for best first film. Mm. And so it could be, you know, whatever whatever first films exist in all the different sections, whether it's the, you know, the official selection, Director's Fortnight, Critics Week, all of these different sections that have uh, their own, you know, a certain regard, they all have films by first-time filmmakers. Mm. And those are all eligible for the Camera Door. And uh, in this case, the uh, the film... Land and Shade was part of the Critics Week, which is always for first and second time filmmakers. Mm. And uh, Cesar Acevedo very, very deservedly won the uh, camera door for this film. C- kind uh, of a coming home story. It is. It's about a man who, uh, after 17 years, uh, after abandoning his, his family, he comes back to take care of his son and uh, finds that the area that, that was once this nice pastoral landscape of you know that, where the home had been is now just devastated, and uh, you know the, the sugarcane fields have been burned, and it's just it's a, it's in a horrible, horrible situation, and it forces him to rise to the occasion and to become the father that he had never been before. It's the a father, really the husband, yeah, 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 the husband and the father he had never been before. It's really a, quite a powerful film, uh, and uh, all in sp- you know all in Spanish with subtitles. So this is from Strand Releasing, and uh, definitely worth checking out. Good, good stuff. All right. Um, uh, shall we uh, lay talk, into Julie? Talk, talk to Julie. Let's put Julie in. Julie, on, the, on the 25th anniversary of the... 25th re- anniversary uh, of Daughters re- of the Restoration Dust. and re-release of uh, Daughters of the... And the film is going to be um, um, uh, going around the country. That's right. It's not just on television. The film will be... Pro- uh, um, projected. Pro- projected all around yep. the country. Yeah. Here's Julie Dash. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking time to do this. I know this is all very last minute. Um... Two huge fans of yours here, by the way. Um, Daughters of the Dust came out when we were starting out as film critics 20-some-odd years ago. And uh, uh, I had just come out of... you have a wider perspective of all <laughs> well, of this. You know, um, and, and I should tell you, too, I, I came out of UCLA Film School, and Billy Woodbury was, was one of the staff there when I, was, when I was in school, and I had no idea who he was until... Uh, I was schooled in the L.A. Rebellion and uh, and everything that you guys did, and that. Uh... Yeah, Billy actually was one of my TAs when I was a graduate school student there. Yeah. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, Daughters of the Dust affected both of us very deeply when we saw it. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very deeply for a whole lot of reasons. Obviously, being a black man, uh, mm-hmm. married, married, married to a to a black woman at the time. Oh, there you are. I only had half of your oh, head. Oh, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, over- I fixed it. I fixed it. <laughs> uh, and 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 so this this perfectly exquisite film that that was beautiful both in its vision and in its story. Tell us a little bit about your personal connection and your family, vis a vis a vis all of that personally. Oh, okay. All right. So my father's side of the family came from um, that region, uh, the coastal region of uh, South Carolina. And um, he was uh, that part of the family. They were Gullah Geechee, descendants of the Gullah Geechee. And, of course, for those who don't know, the Gullah Geechee are descendants of African-Americans who worked on the sea islands uh, and the coastal low country, um, the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Uh, It's a very uh, particular (laughs) culture. Uh, they are very much unlike uh, the African-Americans who live in Mississippi, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, and, you know, everywhere else. Um, 
And the reason being is because they were isolated for so many years. Uh, uh, prior to, I think, 1922, there weren't any uh, bridges, uh, so they would just have to ferry across from the islands to the mainland. And, uh, and because of that, or due to that, the result was uh, the, much of, of, of the cultural traditions and, and mores and everything remained intact from the various uh, West African ethnicities in, from which they came. Mm. Uh, so the, the Gullah Geechee are very different and, um, and, and they remain so to this day. <laughs> you, your, your film was set in 1905, if I remember correctly. Two, oh, two, oh, two. Oh, two. Yeah. yeah. At, at, at that transition period. From the period. turn of century. <laughs> <laughs> right, at the turn, right at the turn. We, Wade and I were just talking about that period. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and how every, you know, the, the, the reconstruction leading into Jim Crow and all of that. Tell us, talk to us a little bit about that that moment in history, both for the people and for the nation. Well, I, for me, as as a storyteller, the turn of the century presented an opportunity to take a look at um, African Americans, uh, who the first generation of freeborn African Americans, they were adults, you know, having uh, been emancipated technically in 1865 but some of them back didn't know for a very long time but technically 1865 so you have a whole new generation of african-americans with with you know goals and inspirations and 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 the turn of the century also for the in terms of the world it was um it was the industrial revolution and uh with the industrial revolution came, you know, a big push towards science and technology. So it was real, it was a potent time. It was a potent time. So it was, it was, and it was also uh, the time of the great migration. So I'm stirring up all of these elements, these political, uh, cultural, uh, technological elements together and creating uh, a story about a family on the eve of their migration north towards all of this new stuff, this new technology, this, uh, this uh, a better life mm. for themselves and, and for their family and for their, and for their children. Um, so being a female filmmaker, I, I decided to focus on the women of the family. Uh, as women are traditionally the carriers of uh, the scrapbookers, the carriers of traditions and belief in, in everybody's family. And, um, and I've always been interested in the culture of women, you know, because you did, I grew up not seeing much of it on the screen, but, you know, at home, women yes, of but color, on the screen. Of course. Yeah. So I thought this would be a great idea, a great opportunity to, 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 to do that with this film. And then the more I found out about the Gullah Geechee culture, the more I wanted to infuse those elements of folklore and history and religion into this particular story. And, um, uh, and being a lover of foreign films, you know, like midway during the writing of the story, I said, well, you know, I love foreign films because I don't know what's going to happen mainly in the film. I don't know, necessarily have an intimate knowledge of the culture of a foreign film. So let me do this here. Let me make, let me create something with 
so authentic, so dense, so layered with the real people, with the real dialogue, with the real uh, social mores and everything that it, it will feel like a foreign film. A sort of sense of uh, neorealism. Yes. Yes. Very, you know, of course, you know, Charles Burnett, he was the, the neorealism guy, and we studied neorealism under Toshomi Gabrielle at UCLA, and I think all of us were really, uh, you know, inspired by those um, those films, those Italian films, you know. Daughters of Dust, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet and Throw it all you, up together and you get daughters of the dust. <laughs> but you made the film for I think it was a million dollars at the time, right? It was about a million uh, at the time I thought it was eight hundred fifty thousand dollars, <laughs> but okay. it over two million. So, so my question but, is you have this amazingly ambitious story that you've poured your heart into in the writing and uh, you could not as I understand you could not have done this without the involvement of public television I, I they played a huge part well you know what it gets it gets confused because at uh, people this was not made for television but it was made by American Playhouse right. they were doing theatrical films at the time I believe they did four of them and Daughters of the Dust was one of them when you and, and people have um, one of them was straight out of Brooklyn. Another one was stand and deliver. But I don't know. Maybe it's a gender issue thing. They turned to my film and said, "Oh, it was a PBS movie." Hmm. If you know anything about film, it wasn't framed for television. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? You know, I'm working in tableaus, and so it was. It was not made for PBS, but it was financed by American Playhouse Theatrical Films. And that was financed by a German company. Got it. <laughs> well, my yeah, but it just—I just read everywhere that it was a PBS, and it's just like, no, it was not. It I know was it, never. It wasn't. It was the thing that was discussed at the time. A lot of folks first came to it, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, years later on PBS, right. I think, mm -hmm. um, who didn't yeah. see it in that theatrical release as we did on the first day. I mean, my, right, my question. Right. My question is, you know, this movie was made for an amount of money. We look, for example, at Moonlight, which was a million and a half now, and we think that's not a lot of money. They got that out of that. You had so, I mean, relatively speaking, that's still an enormously tiny amount of money at that time, and you pulled this epic, this sort of what, what Mira Nair often calls an epic on a peanut, um, out of this, and it's, it's it's sort of extra. It's really extraordinary looking at it in hindsight. Still, I look at it, and I, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you stretched well, those dollars so far. Well, we've been making films for some time. Um, for me, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars was a lot of money back then. A lot of money. I mean, because before that, my largest budget was ten thousand dollars. And so, so you knew you knew how to stretch the money. That was yeah. That we yeah. came up making. Making things look like uh, like a million dollars, then it was only like on the peanut. <laughs> but particularly when we're talking about a period when films were still, in fact, shot on film. This was uh -huh. shot on film, and we um, we shot on Agfrizjeverit, and we had two uh, thirty-five millimeter cameras and and rigged to shoot thirty super thirty-five. And here we and here we are, some uh, twenty-five years uh, later. Mm -hmm. Beyonce's uh, um, uh, video documentary Lemonade, mm -hmm. uh, which of course uh, is, is, is completely steeped 
and Daughters of the Dust is this, which, which tells you something about how deeply that film penetrated the culture uh, all the way through to the youth. Uh, talk a little bit about the Daughters of the Dust, what the film looks like, what it talks about, and how it exists in the culture right now. Because anybody who's seen Lemonade has seen Daughters of the Dust, whether they know it or not. <laughs> Good point. Well, um, I, think, I, I, I think in many ways, the images that we see in Daughters of the Dust, as well as uh, in Beyonce's Lemonade, are part of a, a whole continuum of ideas about authentic African-American realism, magical reality, what have you. Um, these are things that we have read through the words of, you know, like Toni Morrison and Gloria Naylor and Tony K. Bombara, that it have, it, it's taken some time, generations, but we finally brought them to the screen. This whole Song of Solomon aesthetic, if you will. Mm. Um, this um, having your the foundational elements, aesthetic elements, being not based in Western art, uh, being based in more of new world music, new jazz, um, visuals that incorporate uh, an African, a West African aesthetic, as well as... Um, the structural uh, composition of the music of the, of the, of the lemonade of the of the story of Daughters of the Dust. It's not structured in a Western way. It's structured more like an African griot would recall and recount a family's history. So all of these things are coming to play in uh, all of these um, artistic projects, creative projects. And I think that's why there's uh, the kind of coalescing at the same time. I mean, it took a while for, um, you know, Daughters was made like 25, 26 years ago. And now you're seeing elements of it um, in other films. Um, so it's not so much of a homaging or borrowing. It's, I think it's, a, it's all a part of a, a visual aesthetic continuum that's, that's happening. And it's very exciting. A tapestry that's getting bigger and that more more parts of are being uh, illuminated. Yeah. Do you, do yeah. you, feel, do you feel like uh, if when we look at things like Moonlight, when we look at Ava DuVernay's career, for example, and uh, do you feel like these things, because these are, no one is calling these things black films. People are calling these just, these are mainstream movies. They're winning Best Picture. These are, right. this is this is now sort of broken that barrier. Do you feel like this is the, the culmination of what the L.A. Rebellion was, was trying to do at the time? You know, I never put it into those words and thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Um, these, these are films that are not about victimization. These are films that are not about... Um, pointing the finger at anyone. These are films uh, that are unabashedly shameless and just, this is who I am. This, these are my intergroup relationships. This is my community. This is who I am, basically, rather than um, fulfilling some other need. The need that we're fulfilling, we're nurturing ourselves. You could feel that in Moonlight. You know, I felt it. it was like, like he was nurturing 
those people who had gone through those experiences not ashamed of what was happening within the frame, who was doing what, mama was a crack addict, none of that stuff, no shame, this is just it. This is who I am. Yeah, of course, which, stories which have appeared in, in mainstream, shall we say, cinema, you know, since the beginning of cinema, of course. And what, what film festivals yeah. celebrate when yeah. they bring different cultures and different different and, societies And particularly together. in that foreign cinema that you were talking about, yeah. all of that, all of that, the Sika and all of that, uh, Pasolini and Rossellini and all of that stuff. Yeah. That's like, you know, this is, this is what's going down, yeah. you know, and mm. as a matter of fact, that hooker, that's a hooker. <laughs> so, mm. so it, 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 and, and she's finna tell you. Um... So in juxtaposition to, say, films, <clears throat> even, even good films, 12 Years a Slave, uh, 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 Nate, Nate Parker's film, uh, Birth of a oh, Nation. Oh, yeah, 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 Birth of a Nation. Which, yeah, which they have a certain sort of intention, but of course they exist within that slave narrative. They go back to that slave narrative. and, and, and mm -hmm. so that. Talk about daughters in juxtaposition to that because it, it's very specifically does not refer specifically to that slave narrative. It's a forward-looking film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it and it's it takes place, you know, with the first group of people, first adults born, free of be of being enslaved. Uh, that's why I chose the time, nineteen oh two. You're dealing with people who were born free, yeah, mm. <laughs> you know, and um, who are still they're like kind of a sandwich generation, and behind them, like the Nana Pazant character, blue hands. She was born enslaved. And then you have the younger generation, you know, who are two, they're two stops away, two clicks away from being born enslaved. So they have different desires and dreams and all of these things. So what are the women in between saying, this sandwich generation? Uh, I was curious to find out. What, what, what are they doing? What are they saying? What do they want? They're mm -hmm. all very different. Yellow Mary is very different from the Hagar character, um, from the Viola character, who just went straight to Jesus. <laughs> you, know? you know, that Jesus saves everything, you know. Um, I make films and tell stories that, about things that I'm curious about, I think, you know, just... I don't know always how they're going to turn out. And, it, you know, people say, oh, Daughters of the Dust was just, like, so out there. It was so different. It, it didn't seem out there to me. It was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it, was, it seemed like a normal progression in my career and what I was doing and the things I was reading. And uh, so I'm glad now that we have a whole new generation of, of, of people, young people, taking a look at it and commenting on it and telling me what they think. And um, just last night, you know, I had a class um, at Morehouse with my Morehouse men, and they were saying, well, do you ever see Daughters of Dust being remade? I said, it might be. And they said, well, who would you want to remake it? I said, you. Because they bring something different to it. So you're generous there. You're, be, you're very generous. <laughs> you're generous. Uh, because uh, mm. you know, had, had I been in that class, I would have said, well, um, I know this. Uh, there's no reason to remake Daughters of the Dust because it is it is a film that lives permanently present. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 this is a film that you that you don't need to remake because it will always be modern. 
it'll always be modern even though it's set in 1902. It's, it's constantly modern. The only thing you ever need to do about Daughters of the Dust is put it in the DVD player. It's just press play. If you want to see Daughters of the Dust, just watch it. It's right there. All right. And I think that about some films sometimes, you know, uh, some of those Italian neorealism films that, that we've been talking about, most of which have never been remade. Most of which. I was going to make um, Bitter Rice. Oh, wow. I love it. It's just so dramatic. <laughs> Dick's with it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, what were you going to... Well, I was, was going to say, you know, you, you, you're talking about the, 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 the stuff that inspires you. Um, you. You are still an active filmmaker. This is a 25-year-old film that has now been resurrected, and I think a lot of people want to know. Um, uh, people who had never seen it before, now they see it on Blu-ray, thanks to, to Cohen, who I've, oh, done, I've yeah. done commentaries for, and I love those people. So the question is, what now that, people, now that you're on people's radar... Who you know, maybe of a whole different generation. Um, what can what can we expect uh, next? Is there anything you can talk about? Well, you know, there's travel notes of a Geechee girl, the documentary that I've been working on for the last two years about Berta Mesmarkarovna, culinary anthropologist, who became a, con uh, a NPR commentator, right. traveling commentator. Uh, but then there's also um, I have so many different projects that I think maybe now's the time for them. Mm. Uh, years ago, people were like, oh, God. I have a feature called The Colored Conjurers about black magicians traveling the Chitlin circuit. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> but and they're the opening act for, like, you know, the jazz musician Sun House and all of these people. Um, and then I have another a, a mini series that I want to do called Eleanor Roosevelt's Battalion. And it's about the 850 African American women. Who served overseas during World War II? Um, In the age of hidden figures, that's a perfect time for that story. I think so too, especially since we've been pitching it. We bought the book and we've been pitching it for almost, almost nearly ten years. Hmm. Hmm. It is, and a, it is an interesting. Says, oh, it's fascinating. We'll have to check on it uh, <laughs> because they don't really believe me. It they is say, well, here are the pictures. Here are the photographs. Here they are. <laughs> It's an interesting thing. So, so here we are now. So after two or three years of, you know, Oscar, so why this, that, and the other thing, um, uh, and the pressures Which that helped me get into the uh, academy. I, I was going to say the pressures <laughs> that it brought to bear on the academy, which brought in that class. Was was it last year? Last year. Last year, year. Last year that you know that that mm -hmm. new class. So uh, that if, class part of that class. Yeah. If somebody had asked me. <clears throat> prior to that, um, oh, it's Julie Dash in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And, mm -hmm. and though I did not know for sure, if somebody had said, you know, which way do you want to bet on that, I'd have said, I'm going to bet she is. No, I wasn't. And you I weren't. was never uh, accepted what? in back then. What's wrong with that picture? Uh, it, what was wrong with it? It's a corrected picture, but what was well, wrong I, with I it for 25 years? Dust was, was a film, I believe, frightened some people. Because it, the, uh, these were not the black people they knew and expected or, or felt any kinship with. These were totally, we were the other. I was the other. And they were much happier with films that they produced afterwards that dealt kind of with um, that region, but was, had the more familiar uh, tropes involved. Mm. Uh, and, and, and familiar situations involved, and they, they were happy with that. Very interesting. Well, well thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> you, have, you have two supporters in the room, and we will continue to sing your praises. Thank you so much. And we Thanks. will follow up. We will follow up. Yes, we will. We will.
All right. Okay. Thanks so much. Right. Bye. Bye bye. And there it is, Julie Dash. Back on the back on the radar. Outstanding. Yeah, it's terrific. Really? Wonder, she's so smart and so kind of level, you know? Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's not been an easy career for her. No, it, look, you know, she's done what she's done, and she's worked television here, a documentary. She, yeah. she was working on their teachers at Morehouse. And she hangs tough. Uh, and, and hangs she knows, tough. She knows what this business is about. Yeah, you know? so we, we shall see. We shall see. All right, our, our very best to her. And uh, let's see, we're, we're, uh, we're over time now. We're at about an hour and 15. So uh, let me make a quick mention of just a couple of docs. Mm. Uh, I uh, wanted to make mention first of uh, going out Art Bastard, which we uh, got a couple of weeks ago and haven't had a chance to talk about yet. But uh, Art Bastard is uh, a really, really, really interesting story. This is about Robert Senadella who was a um, kind of a, a contemporary of Andy Warhol, but he was not Warhol. He was where you went in that New York art scene if you uh, were not Warhol. And in many respects, he is just as revolutionary and just as much of a, a, a rebel figure as Warhol. And this kind of gets into the Julie Dash thing, too. You know, what happens when you stick to your guns and you're an artistic rebel and you... Uh, you aren't necessarily acknowledged for it, uh, will things eventually kind of come back around? This is on Blu-ray and on DVD. Uh, this is, the, uh, this is a, a look at a guy who really is, deserves to be rediscovered and is being slowly rediscovered. And what a fascinating life. Uh, in many respects, even more fascinating life than that of Warhol's, uh, just because it has so many unusual ups and downs and ins and outs. Um, a little less mercenary than Andy. Warhol, less mercenary, but, yeah. but no less principled and, and uh, daring and courageous. So uh, really, really worth checking out. This was a big deal in New York. It hasn't quite been as big of a deal outside of New York. I think perhaps because uh, Cinderella isn't really that known outside of New York. It still has a following there. But uh, worth checking out. The movie is Art Bastard. Give it a look. And uh, it's a really solid documentary, too, written and directed by Victor Kanevsky, who's a terrific documentarian. And uh, then just uh, one more. Let's see. I just realized I know Victor Konevsky's brother, Rolf. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Rolf directed a film called The Nightmare Man. You know what I'm going to go out on, uh, Tim? I'm going to go out on. I'm going to go out on another Criterion. Uh, this was in. This is in the big doc pack stack that we didn't get to today. But what a what a great way to go out. Buena Vista oh, Social Club. Oh man, oh man. Talk about music. We were just talking about music. So uh, Buena Vista Social Club. I'm very close to uh, for good reason because I was right smack in the middle of this film uh, through its whole post production. My wife. Uh, was the post-production supervisor of this film. Yeah. And our very, very dear friend, uh, Brian, was the editor. And uh, the story of this is that uh, Ry Cooter and, and Vim Vendors went to Cuba and shot a whole lot of footage mm. of all of these amazing musicians in this Oscar-nominated... Uh, some of whom were gone, passed on since... Most is, of whom have passed on. about 99. And these yeah. guys were 60, 70, 80. Yeah. Or 70, 80, 90. Most of them have passed on since. Yeah. And it's it's sad to us every single time one of them does. Because we went to some live concerts, too. Yeah. And uh, they're just so extraordinary, all of them. But, um, yeah, this... Uh, they came back with a giant pile of footage. And uh, poor Brian sat there in an editing room for the better <laughs> part of a year... 
just working through it all and logging and cutting and logging and cutting and what an ordeal it was. It was just such a huge uh, task. It really was. It led to all kinds of concerts here in the States and, and you know, these, it's some wonderful. Of these people left this, they, Cuba they, after having not been out of Cuba since the middle. They thought they'd never have careers again and yeah. then they suddenly have this resurgence. They're embraced and appreciated by American artists. It is, I still think this is one of Vi uh, Vim Vander's best films. Ry Cooter, of course, and also an essential figure to this film because yeah. he's sort of the muse through which uh, this all happens, right? He connects all of these figures and connects them to America. And uh, I just love this film. Terrific movie. All right, with that, we are done. We are out, and uh, we'll be back next week. Let's see if Loverboy comes yeah, back next week. Yeah, let's see. Or if happens. he heads to Paris for good. <laughs> all right. Interesting. We'll see you guys. <laughs>